I'll say good morning, and it's good to be with you, and I'm certainly grateful for the presence of each one. Glad that you're able to be here this morning and that you chose to be here, and appreciate the opportunity that's been given to me to be with you this morning and to share with you from my study of God's Word. I want to apologize to you. I got a little flustered this morning. I went out, and the, the tailgate on the vehicle was stuck closed, and I was trying to open it, and so I had my Bible and my coffee and my little flash drive and all my stuff, and I began setting that down in all those different places, and at some point, the little flash drive got left somewhere. <laughs> so, so that's, I'm not as uh, cloud-friendly as I ought to be, and I, maybe, maybe this is the little shove that I needed to, to get a little more up-to-date there. So, won't have the PowerPoint for you this morning, but invite you to grab a Bible and follow along this morning. I titled the study this morning, Who is the Lord? And you might say, well, that's kind of a, why would we... Why would we talk about that? Have you not heard the, the songs that we just sang? Did you not listen to the prayer, the words of the prayers that we, we know who the Lord is? But I might uh, ask you to consider, what if someone was to ask you that question? What if you ran into somebody and, and maybe they heard you singing one of these songs that, that you've sung this morning and they, and they just genuinely, sincerely ask you, who, who is the Lord? Would, it, would you be surprised to find someone that, that didn't know the answer to that question? You know, there's a lot of people that have a concept. You know, some people might put the question this way and say, well, who's the Lord to you? Or who is your Lord? And we live in a world, a society that thinks that we can kind of fill in the blank however we want and, and we can just answer that question and that's, that's who the Lord is. Just whoever he is to me, well, that's who he is. And certainly the answer to the question has, it, it, it is rooted in truth. There's an answer given, it's revealed by the Lord himself as to who he is, what kind of a God that he is. And so those, that information is there for us, and there's a lot of, of bad information out there. But when we think about the question, it's not a new question. In fact, if you turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 5, uh, if you recall uh, when God had, had called Moses and he's chosen him to lead his people out of, out of the bondage that they were suffering in the land of Egypt, it says in Exodus 5 and verse number 1, Afterwards Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. And so he puts this question out there. And often as I read that passage and that, that particular question, I've thought of it more as probably just a, a statement of arrogance, perhaps. Uh, of Pharaoh, I, I imagine Pharaoh probably had some sort of self-image that maybe he was deity himself. A lot of those, those uh, cultures believed something to that effect. Or maybe he was worshipped as sort of some sort of supernatural type being. Maybe he had that idea. Maybe not. Maybe he was ignorant. Maybe he had been raised in this, this polytheistic environment and, and he knew all these different names of all these different gods and he offered them some sort of service, but he wasn't familiar with Jehovah. He wasn't familiar with the Lord that, uh, that Moses in introduces and, and by which authority he comes and speaks. And so whatever the case might be, I suspect maybe a little bit of both in there, but he, he makes this statement. He says, I don't know the Lord. And you know, that, that statement has to be true for Pharaoh to act the way that he acts in, in, the, in the following uh, passages of Scripture that we have recorded. And perhaps that was a very willful, willful ignorance, a rejection, a, a refusal to come to know 
or to understand. But he asked that, that question. And so it's certainly not a new question. When we get over into the, the New Testament times, Acts chapter 17, uh, and verse number 22 and 23, if you're, if you're taking notes, uh, Paul stood in the midst of Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the object, objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim unto you. And so, here in another uh, polytheistic environment where individuals are worshiping everything under the sun, every God that they can uh, possibly think of, he comes to this inscription, this place, to the unknown God. So these... These people wanted to cover all their bases. The King James says, I perceive that you're very superstitious. I, I don't think he, he intended to insult these individuals. I think he was trying to look for an opportunity in a doorway to instruct them. And so the new King James says, I perceive that you're very religious. He says, look, you're, you're trying to worship everyone. In fact, you're trying to make sure you have all the bases covered. So just in case you forgot someone, you've got this little spot over here reserved for this God that you are unaware of, that you are ignorant about, that you don't know. And that way, you don't unknowingly upset anyone. And so he begins to proclaim, he begins to teach them concerning this God that they ignorantly worshipped. And of course that instruction would, would be and would reveal that he's the only true God. That there's only one God. And so certainly this question could arise and it could be one that we might run into um, out of ignorance, out of a lack of opportunity, a lack of instruction, someone not having the, the blessing, the privilege of being taught who the Lord was growing up. The reality is, is more often than not, this question comes as a result of an unfortunate decision that people have made in their lives. And I think this is where the question and the study this morning really hits home and has application in our lives, even those of us who, who uh, would proclaim to serve the Lord, would call ourselves Christians and followers of Christ. Consider Proverbs chapter 30 and verse number 8. In Proverbs chapter 30 and verse number 8, the wise man said this. He said, Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. And so the wise man warned of the danger of abundance. And his prayer is for sufficiency. His prayer is for enough. Give me just enough. Give me what I need. If I have too much, I realize there's this danger that I'm going to deny you. That word, when you, when you study that word, it means to lie. Lest I be full and I lie and I say, who is the Lord? Isn't it interesting? Have you noticed how many of the, those that have rose to, to great wealth, that at some point towards the end of that, that rise of, of wealth and power and all the things that come with it, that they, they feel the need to come out and, and proclaim that they, they have no belief in God, that they don't believe in God? Certainly, that's, that's nothing new. Romans chapter 1, verse number 21. Scripture says, Because although they knew God, 
They did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Individuals that knew God, but they didn't respond to that appropriately. They didn't act appropriately. They weren't thankful. They didn't acknowledge God correctly in the appropriate way. When they thought about this question of who the Lord is, they became puffed up. Down to verse number 28, it says, Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Now, notice that phrase there. He said, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. That's, that's a statement of preference. It's not about opportunity. It's not that the information wasn't there. It was they didn't want to think about God. I do not like. There's different things that I do not like. One of the first things that comes to my mind is Brussels sprouts. And people say, well, you just have to have them cooked the right way. And I've had them cooked a lot of different ways, and I've never liked any of them. I don't like the smell they make when they're being cooked all these different ways. But it's, just, it's simply a statement of preference because if, if you cook up a bunch of Brussels sprouts and you say, well, I, I heard that these preachers, they have to eat whatever you put in front of them when they come over. So, here, here's this plate of Brussels sprouts. I can eat Brussels sprouts. I don't enjoy it, but I can do it. I just don't like to. And that's the statement that's made about these individuals. They did not like to retain God in their knowledge. It's not convenient to think about who the Lord is when I'm out doing whatever it is that I want to do all day long and just pursuing my own selfish interest all, all the time. Thinking about who the Lord is is very inconvenient for that kind of lifestyle. And so they didn't like to retain God and their knowledge. And so they would deny him. And they would ask this question, most likely. Who is the Lord if someone was to, to reprove their deeds, if someone was to draw into question what they're doing? Well, who's the Lord? I'm just not sure that I believe in God, they might say. In Job chapter 2, verse number 5, Satan has began, begun his assault against Job. He's challenging God. He's slandering God. He's slandering Job. He's uh, challenged God and said, Job only serves you. He only worships you because you give him all this stuff. And if you take all this stuff away, then he'll curse you to your face. And God allows that temptation uh, to proceed and for Job to be tempted in that way. And it doesn't. It fails. And so Satan comes back again and he says, well, if you touch his bone and his flesh, in verse number 5 of chapter 2, but put forth thy hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will, American Standard Version says, renounce thee to your face. That word curse, in the King James, interesting word, uh, most of the time that Hebrew word is used, it's used, uh, it's translated as bless, to bless. Uh, and so it's one of those words that, it's all about the context and how it's said. We have, we have words like that, don't we? You might serve, someone might serve me something besides Brussels sprouts that I'm very happy to eat, and I would say, oh, well, thank you very much. And then maybe somebody uh, you know, cuts me off in traffic, and I might say, well, thanks a lot. You, know? <laughs> you can say the same word and have completely different meanings, right? And that's the idea here is this idea of Job cursing God to his face, to renounce God. To bless is to acknowledge, to give thanks, to, to essentially view 
yourself as, as the recipient of a benefit from someone in a, in a higher position than you, if you will, or, or someone bestowing something upon you, and then you flip that around in that sense of renouncing, of cursing. And that's what Satan wanted for Job. That was the goal of his attack on Job. He wanted to put all of this pressure. He wanted to, to him to be stripped of all of these blessings that he received from the Lord, ultimately to the end that he would renounce God. That he might ask this question. That he might look at somebody else that passed by when they brought up the Lord or discussed the Lord and he might say, who's the Lord? I don't know the Lord. Why should I obey his voice like Pharaoh did? And that was Satan's goal for Job. And you know what? That's Satan's goal for you and for me too. That we would forget the Lord. If we would not uh, renounce him and curse him to his face, simply that we might forget who the Lord is. Become too busy or too distracted and so it's very important for us to think about exactly who the Lord is. And when we do that, it's important for us to, uh, to start with a very simple concept that we see taught in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse number 28. <clears throat> now, in 1 Samuel 15, 28, King Saul has rejected God's command uh, as it pertained to uh, utterly destroying the Amalekites. And so the prophet Samuel comes to him in verse 28. He says, Samuel said to him, Saul, that is, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. And so the prophet makes this statement to Saul about God. He's not going to repent or to relent, for he's not a man that he should. And when people talk about the Lord, sometimes that's the phrase, that, well, the man upstairs. And a lot of people, when they put information out about the Lord, they do it through this lens as if the Lord were a man. And if you start there, you'll never get to the right place. You'll never get to the correct understanding of who the Lord is. And so it's, it's very important that you start at, at the right place and understand and realize that the Lord is not a man. And he's not like a man. And if you don't accept that reality, then your understanding of, of, of the Lord and of God will be flawed. Consider Isaiah chapter 57 and verse number 15. Isaiah chapter 57, 15 says, For thus saith the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Ever thought about the Lord inhabiting eternity? What does that mean that he inhabits eternity? The psalmist in Psalm chapter 90 in verse number 2, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God not only is God not a man, God is eternal. We are bound by time in everything that we do. We've got clocks on the wall. We wear them sometimes around our wrists. Our phones have the clocks on them. I was, had the, 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 the privilege of being there when all four of my children were born, and I remember at each, each one, they would call out that time. They, they, there was that marking 
of that time. Perhaps you've been around when someone passed from this life and there was that marking of that time and every spot in between that clock, it has an impact on us. And it's, it governs us and we're governed by it. And all these rules and laws of, of nature and science that we know, they, they all are in respect and with respect to time. And the Lord is not governed by time, but rather he's the governor of time, the creator of time. And he inhabits eternity, and he's from everlasting and to everlasting. And it might be simple to wrap your mind around that concept intellectually. Think about the concept of without beginning and without end, or the little symbol of the, the eight laying on its side of infinity that we might use to illustrate the concept of no beginning or no end. But to really put that into application when we think about what our concept of the Lord is. You know, our Lord Jesus, he proved that he was Lord over time while he was on this earth, didn't he? When he could do something like turn water into wine like, like that. We, we, we're governed by time. So we understand that's, that's not possible. You can't instantaneously do We can't instantaneously do that. But the Lord's not governed by time. He, he lives outside of, of, of that, those constraints of time. He inhabits eternity. So he's the eternal one. He's an almighty, you, the word omnipotent is often used, Lord. Job, in Job 42, verse number 1, it says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything, and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. Job had this understanding about the Lord. He knew who the Lord was and that he could do everything and that no purpose could be withheld from him. No, no one could, could withhold him from doing his will. We go Revelations chapter 19 and verse number 6. John records, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia! For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. He reigns. God is powerful and he is in control. And when you think about the, the environment and the conditions and the lens that maybe those first century brethren might have been looking through in the, the time of that writing of the book of Revelation, and maybe the oppression that they saw from, from the government and the time that they lived in and the, and the environment and the sinfulness of the world around them, it might not have been that difficult to struggle. You know, we mentioned in the prayer this morning. Sometimes you, you look at the things that are going on in the world and, and who's in charge, and, and there might be a little bit of a struggle to remember who's in control. But there was never any question in heaven, was there? Even in, in the midst of all of that and all of that immorality and all the terrible things and suffering and, and persecution of the church that was going on, that the Lord was reigning in heaven, that he was in control. Proverbs chapter 26 and verse number 10, the great God who formed everything gives the fool his hire and the transgressor, transgressor his wages. He formed everything. Psalms 148, verse number 5. We have a, a, a song in, in, in many of our songbooks. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded 
and they were created. You know what, what's mentioned in that text? If you read Psalms 148, he starts with the angels, I believe, hosts or armies, the sun, moon, the stars. We call the, the entire creation. It says, let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. At the sound of his voice, something came from nothing. That's the extent of the power of the Lord that we're talking about. Daniel chapter 4, verse number 34. King Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember back to Daniel chapter 2, he had been, uh, had a dream. God had revealed to him through this dream about the succession of, of nations that would come after him and described him as this great head of gold. That's essentially a, a, a very powerful, the world power at the top of that power structure. There he was, the most powerful nation, of the, of the, the, the most uh, powerful empire in the world. And what happened? Remember what the wise man said, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? And that's the point that Nebuchadnezzar got to, to, to the point where he forgets about who the Lord is. And he's humbled by the Lord. And at the end of that journey, he has this testimony that's recorded for us in Daniel 4, verse number 34. At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles restored to me. I was restored to my kingdom and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice and those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. And so... If there was one word that we want to stick from this point of our study this morning, he is able, powerful, able. In Romans chapter 4, you remember in the New Testament, speaking of Abraham, it says he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in the faith giving glory to God, being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able to perform. A powerful God. That's the Lord. That's what the scripture teaches. Not only is he an almighty, all-powerful God, he's an all-knowing God. Isaiah chapter 46, verse number 9, the prophet says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. And so God, through the prophet Isaiah, he issues this challenge. Find a God like me. You find someone like me that can declare the end of the thing from the beginning and bring it to pass. 
And he, he states right there, there's none like me in heaven above or in earth beneath. He knows the end from the beginning. Psalms 147 and verse number 5, Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. His understanding is infinite. And we talked about that concept of without beginning, without end. And that's the word that's used to describe God's understanding. I read a book and it was talking about Einstein and his theory of relativity and he had this kind of naturalistic worldview and, and so when he was formulating that theory of relativity that I don't pretend at all to, to understand has something to do with gravity and its relation to other cosmic forces and all that. But he's formulating this and he's tripped up a little bit so is the, the, the record of, of what happened as he's coming about and, and formulating this process and he has an error in his calculations that he, he assumes something to be constant that's not constant essentially. And what's recorded is that he has this opportunity to go and to view through the Hubble telescope that the universe is expanding. And the, the evidence is there, it's clear, and so he has the opportunity to make this journey and to see this. And when he has that opportunity, this, this quote is attributed to, to Albert Einstein. It says that he wanted to, quote, to know how God created the world. I am not interested in this or that phenomenon, in the spectrum of this or that element. I want to know his thought. The rest are details, end quote. I don't know if Einstein said those exact words or not. That's, that was documented, had the footnotes. It was all, you know, all, uh, all of the, the technical uh, elements were there, but who knows. But if he did make that statement, he made that statement much like the Sadducees. If you remember Matthew chapter 22, um, verse number 29, when they, when they tried to trip up Jesus, about this guy who, who uh, was this woman who was married to, to all these different men and who was going to be her husband in the resurrection. And they're trying to, to trip Jesus up with this. And his response to them is, you do error not knowing the scriptures, the power of God. You don't know the scriptures, you don't know the power of God. If Einstein made that statement, he erred not knowing the scriptures or the power of God. Because what well, a greatest minds that we know as humans is not capable of wrapping his mind around God's understanding. It's infinite. It's without understanding. Isaiah chapter 40, verse number 28. Have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary? His understanding is unsearchable. It's unsearchable. What does that mean? Romans 11, 33, Oh, the depth and the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. I look at something like the theory of relativity and I get lost just trying to read the first few sentences of what all of that means and how that might apply. It's kind of hard to fathom a mind that could see the world in that way and, and, and make things work and calculate things the, the way that some of those great uh, mathematicians and scientists and, and scholars over the years have done but even those great minds are not capable of finding out of comprehending of knowing what the Lord knows 
That's who the Lord is. He knows all. In Psalms 104 and verse number 24, when we think about everything that the Lord knows, it's important to think about this. Psalms 104 and verse number 24, O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. In wisdom you have made them all. A wisdom that's unsearchable. An extent of knowledge that's past finding out. And everything that God made, the psalmist said he made in wisdom. In that vast wisdom we're talking about. Let's think about, just for practical application, just for a few seconds, a couple of those things. Things that the Lord made. The earth, obviously, the creation as we know it. The family. He ordained the family. He invented marriage, if you will. He did that in his vast wisdom and his knowledge of knowing the end from the beginning. And here we come along and we think we've got better ideas about that than the all-knowing God. The church. He made that. He had the blueprints before the foundation of the world. And we come along and we think we've got better ideas than the Lord about the church. And on and on and on and on we could go. But think about that statement and let that sink in. That all of his works are done in wisdom. And it's a wisdom that's unsearchable. It's a wisdom that's infinite. It's a wisdom that's past finding out. And so when we are revealed something by the Lord, don't forget that. And don't forget who the Lord is. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us. And not we ourselves, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Psalms 100 and verse number 3. He made us. Don't forget that. He knows what he's doing. And when we consider the extent of his knowledge, we need to let that get very personal. Hebrews 4.13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He knows about you and about me. And he knows the things that we don't want anybody else to know. He's aware of those things. First Chronicles 28, verse number 9. As for you, my son Solomon, David says, Know the God of your fathers and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. He knows your heart. He knows your thoughts. What David tells Solomon is he knows all the intent of the thoughts. To the very deepest level, to the motive, not only of what you did, not only of why you did that, not only of what you were thinking, but why you were thinking what you were thinking. And the Lord knows that. In Psalms 139, verse number 3, you comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. And the Lord knows what you're really about and what's in your heart. In Psalm 69, verse number 5, O God, you know my foolishness and my sins are not hidden from you. 
And so he knows our failings and our sinfulness. And it's important for us to realize that, that this all-knowing God knows us personally and what's in our heart. Not only is the Lord all-knowing, but he's also all-present. 1 Kings 8, verse number 28, as Solomon prays a prayer of dedication as he's uh, completed the temple, he says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. And so he understood a concept about God, that God, again, is not a man. He's not like a man that can only be in one place at one time. He said, the heaven and the heavens of heaven can't contain you. How much less this, this house, this building that I've built. He understood that God wasn't going to come and live in that, that house, in that building. That he was an all-present God. Acts chapter 17 again, verse number 24 this time. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So when we talk about who the Lord is, how he's all-knowing, and all-powerful and he's all-present and at the same time he's not far from each one of us and so when we talk about who the Lord is we are led to something about the character of the Lord the kind of God that he is that he's a God that desires a relationship with you and with me that desires for you to find him and has made himself Available. He's made himself findable if, if you'll seek him. He'll be found. That's what David told his son Solomon. That's what's revealed to us in the book of Acts. In Hebrews 11, verse number 6, Without faith it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. He's a God that wants to reward those who seek him. And so the Lord is a rewarder. And so as we wrap these, these things up that we've talked about this morning and we think about the practical application of remembering who the Lord is, that he's not a man, that he's different than men. And so when we constrain him, when we dumb down the concept of who the Lord is to, to fit our understanding, then we err and we don't, give heed to what's revealed in the scripture and we deny the power of God. So God is all powerful. He's in control. And so we mentioned this morning and we know that it's a reality. We, we get anxious sometimes. We battle with some anxiety sometimes. We get to wonder what's going to go on. Why do we do that? We battle with anxiety when we go back to the root cause, when we forget who the Lord is. And we try to be in control of things that we're simply not in control of. We have control over ourselves, and we do a pretty miserable job at that most of the time, don't we? And then when we start trying to control things 
we have no control over, then we're going to battle with that anxiety and we begin to worry about this. If we forget who the Lord is, the all-powerful God of heaven, then we're going to battle with anxiety and we're going to lose that battle some of the time. And so it's important that we remember that the Lord God all-powerful reigns, that he's in control, that he knows what he's doing. If we forget that, we're going to battle and we're going to lose the battle with pride. We're going to be lifted up in our fleshly mind. We're going to start thinking that we have the answers when God's given us the answers. He knows the answers. He knows what he's doing. Everything that he's done, he's done in wisdom. A wisdom that's unsearchable, that's past finding out. He's present. And if we forget who the Lord is, that he's a God that's near, a God that's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, a God that has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, then we're going to lose a battle with fear in this life. And we're going to go right to where all of those news stations want us to go and be governed and ruled by fear when we forget who the Lord is. When we forget that the Lord is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him, then we get too busy doing the things that we want to do and we get slothful and lazy about seeking the Lord and doing His will. He's a rewarder of them that diligently see Him. Do you forget who the Lord was? So I'll never forget who the Lord was. I could never forget that. Do you just think about that question on a daily basis as you examine your life? We'll close with a passage from Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse number 32. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse number 32, the prophet says, Can a maid forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? How many times in recent history do you suppose that all of the invitations have gone out for the wedding? And people have come from across the country, perhaps across the world. They've gathered and they're all wearing their finest wedding clothes and the feast has been prepared. And the preacher's lined up and all the family's invited. How many times do you think the bride has showed up to that occasion and said, you know, I never even thought about what I was going to wear? I heard at least one, one of the women laugh and chuckle at that. It's ridiculous. You think that's happened? Or it's got to that point and the bride's shown up and she says, you know, I never even thought about what I was going to wear for this occasion. That's the rhetorical question that the prophet puts this out there in. Can a maid forget her ornaments or a bride her attire, yet my people have forgotten me days without number? How many days have you forgot about the Lord? How many days have you gone through your life without giving thought to who the Lord is? How many hard times have you run into and you just went into that mindset where I've, just, I've got to handle I've got to get everything taken care of. I've got to make it right. There's nobody to help me. I'm all by myself. Did you forget who the Lord is? Did you forget about the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God of heaven that rewards them that diligently see Him, that promise to never leave you or forsake you? If you do that, you're going to get to a lot of places that you don't want to be, that you shouldn't be. Don't forget who the Lord is. Remember who the Lord is and be able to share with others who the Lord is. Be able to correct so much of the bad information that's out there about who the Lord is. And so the lesson jurors this morning, I hope that you don't forget who the Lord is. And I hope that you realize that, that serious warning of the prophet Jeremiah. 
My people have forgotten me days without number. And I hope that you don't let that happen in your life. If you're here this morning and you have any kind of spiritual need, if you've not obeyed the gospel of Christ, been baptized into Christ, do you know who the Lord is? Do you forget who the Lord is? Do you need to be taught more who the Lord is? Don't delay in that. Find someone here. Start the conversation. Get the information that you need. Go to God's book and learn about who the Lord is and what He desires of you and what He requires of you. If you've done that and you've forgotten who the Lord is, do what you need to do to get your mind right and to get back on the right track. If we can be of assistance to you in any way, please let that be known by having a seat on one of these front seat pews as we stand and sing the song that's been selected for